0: 2,500 years ago, the nation of Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Babylon was the world's dominant empire and system. God's people spent 70 long years far from home in Babylonian captivity. Just as the nation of Judah was taken into captivity 2,500 years ago, we, as God's people today, can find our hearts being taken captive by today's world system. But soon, This Babylon we are in will be gone, just like the one from 2,500 years ago. And if this is where our hearts are, if this is where all our hopes, dreams, plans, identity, and worth is found, then we have a problem. To give your life to the way of the Babylonians will be a catastrophic waste of your life. Our bodies might be in Babylon, but our hearts can be at home. Where is home, you ask? Our true home is not a place, it's a person. We were created to live with God, even better, to live in God, abide in me, dwell in me, live in me. That's what Jesus tells us to do. That was God's plan and purpose all along in creating mankind, for us to dwell with him in a personal, real, living and breathing relationship. And when God is our home, and we dwell with him, dwell in him, then and only then will our souls truly find the rest we long for. There really is no place like home. There really is no person like Jesus, but we need to walk in wisdom because with every breath we take, the powers of modern day Babylon are seeking to lure us into captivity.
1: A lot of God's people today are in captivity, not physically, uh, but spiritually, and obviously then that affects everything else about us. Our hearts get lured away from where they're supposed to be in God and drawn into captivity. We are created and redeemed to live lives that are engulfed and encircled by the presence of God, the glory of God, the power of God. We said last week, listen, Jesus didn't come into this world and die simply so we could live in the same universe as God without Him squashing us. He didn't come and die simply so we could live in the same neighborhood as God. Jesus came and died so that you and I might live in God, that we might dwell in the shelter and in the shadow of the Almighty. Dwell, abide, live in me. That's the... That's the language of the Bible. But I think a lot of times, as Christ's followers, we tend to think of our relationship with God as something that looks sort of like this. You may remember this from last week, the stick man and the circle. Somebody, let me demonstrate it. <laughs> we kind of think of, our relationship with God like that, that we are in this constant quest to try to get closer and closer to God, but that is not the language of Scripture, abide, dwell, live in. In other words, it ought to look something more like this, that we are encompassed and engulfed and encircled by God Himself. This is what the Scripture says. Moses wrote this in Psalm chapter 90, verse 1. He said, Lord, You have been our home. You've been our home from the beginning. We have been encompassed and encircled by you. You have been our our home, our shelter, our refuge, our safe place. Paul said this in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. For in him, in him, not with him, in him, we live and move and exist. And Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, watch this, and we will come and make our home. Make our home with each of them. You know, you may not even realize this today, but your heart's deepest longing is not to merely know about God. Your heart's deepest longing is not merely to be getting a little bit closer to God. The greatest and deepest longing of your heart is that your life would be engulfed in God, encompassed by, encircled by God himself. And here's what's staggering. While that is our deepest longing, whether we know it or not, it is also God's passion. He died. He sent his own son into the world that you and I might take up residence in him and him in us. I might have told you last week, you know, I'm preaching a sermon series now, a little different from what I normally preach. I like to take a book of the Bible and we just go verse by verse, and, but sometimes you need to preach topically, and that's what I'm doing right now, and the reason for that is there's a member of our church, Bob Cofield, and Bob's writing a book, and he's allowing me to kind of read it while he's in the process of writing it, and as I was reading it about a month or so ago, man, it blessed me, it encouraged me, it challenged me, it struck a chord, within my heart, and I thought, okay, if this is ministering to me like this, maybe this is what God wants to minister to the rest of our church family. So I asked Bob for permission to sort of snuggle up to his work there that he's doing and kind of make sermons out of it, and he gave me permission to do that. But I want to read a piece of his book to you today and listen to what Bob says. He says, quote, now, if dwelling with God does not sound exciting enough to you, then your concept of God may be inaccurate. David was dwelling in him when he faced Goliath. The Puritan pilgrims were dwelling in him as they endured hardships and crossed the uncharted waters of the Atlantic to found Plymouth Colony. Tim Tebow was abiding in him when he won the Heisman Trophy. Joni Erikson Tato has dwelt in him for almost 50 years as a quadriplegic, giving hope and encouragement to multitudes. Countless Christian martyrs in countries where Christianity is forbidden have given and continue giving their lives while dwelling in Christ. He goes on and says, Just think of some of the things that God has created out of nothing and currently holds together the human brain and hand. The unimaginably vast reaches of the universe, countless stars, black holes, and supernova. The mind-boggling principles of quantum physics, class 5 white water rapids, mountains, double black diamond ski slopes, tigers, whales, delicate microorganisms, DNA molecules, puppies, you name it. He goes on and says, God has left us in a universe that is so vast, varied, and complex." That we devote our lifetimes, as many have, to trying to understand it better and never know all of its secrets. When the biblical character Job questioned God's greatness, goodness, and wisdom, God asked him a long series of questions about his work of creation that each began with something like, Okay, if you think you know so much, then please tell me, where were you when I created all of this? And then God takes Job on a tour of creation And the universe, Bob goes on, he says, again, according to his own words, we ourselves were originally created in God's image, including our own imagination, creativity, and ability to reason and to acquire knowledge. That means that your wildest dreams and imaginings owe their existence ultimately to God. And you think living in him could possibly be boring. Because sometimes we begin to think that kind of relationship with God is not for us. We don't find it compelling enough. We don't find it interesting enough. We might not say it, but our lives would reflect that indeed we might find it boring. It's that kind of thought pattern that leads our hearts into captivity. It's that kind of thought pattern that leads our hearts away from their True home in God. It's that kind of thought pattern that God somehow is not enough to hold my attention. He's somehow not worthy enough of my affection. It is that kind of thinking that makes makes our hearts vulnerable to the attacks of this fallen world and to our own sinful flesh and to Satan himself. And here's what we want to do in this sermon series over the coming weeks. We want to identify some of these captors that lure our hearts away from home with God, where our hearts belong. We want to identify them so that we can better understand how they operate. Because if we better understand how they operate, then we can better understand how God would guide us to walk in victory over them. So that our hearts don't end up in captivity but that our hearts stay home, engulfed and encircled and encompassed by the presence of God where Jesus died for them to be. Now, so if today your heart is away from God and has been taken captive somehow, then we want to see, by God's grace, your heart break free, escape Babylon, and embrace home. And if your heart, heart is home today, then praise the Lord, I would say relish this moment because... Keeping our hearts at home with God is no easy task. And if you're there today, you're probably in the minority in the room here. So so let's start today by recognizing what I would say is probably one of the chief captors, one of the leading captors that the world, the flesh, and the devil uses to take our hearts into captivity. And this particular captor, by the way, comes in countless forms. We could spend here all day talking about the different ways that this captor works and operates in our lives to draw our hearts away from God. So this first captor that we need to talk about today is what I would call idolatry. Idolatry is not a new word to us at Grace Life. We talk about that. We teach about that. We preach about that a lot. But we we need to come back around to it today. I think it was Calvin who said that our hearts are idol-making factories. I don't think that we can probably talk about or preach about or consider the power of idolatry in our lives enough because it's a constant struggle 24-7, 365 days out of the year. What is an idol? Well, an idol is, it could be a person, it could be a place, it could be a thing, it could be an idea. It's it's not a little statue that we bow bow down to. It's just our real life. It's our real 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 world. Now here's the thing, that person or that place or that idea or that thing is not necessarily evil. It's not necessarily wrong. In fact, oftentimes idols started out as good things or at least neutral things. Like money's a neutral thing, right? Money's neither good or evil. It's what you do with money that determines whether it's good or evil. Your job is not good or evil. It's what you do with that job that depends on whether or not it's good or evil, right? What happens, though, is a neutral thing or a good thing that even God himself may put into our hand. Suddenly, we begin to devote more attention to it than we do God. We begin to pour out more affection on it than we do God. We become convinced that now this is more captivating to my attention than God is. This is way more appealing, not near as boring as old God is. And now I can't imagine my life without this. Man, I got to have this. In fact, I want more of this. And so now this is mine. Now I close my hand up around this good thing or this neutral thing at least that God has given me. And now with my hand closed up, I can begin to think things like, oh yeah, I'll worship God, but I'm going to... Worship him as I hold on real tight to this. I surrender almost all, but I got to have this for my joy. I got to have these, this for my peace. I got to have this for my identity. I got to have this for my self worth. I got to have this for my value. And I begin to trust and treasure this thing now that is in my hand. I begin to put my hope in this to provide for me the peace that I want, the security that I want in my life. That's an idol. We've made a good thing now, a really lousy God. Let me give you some real life examples of how this works out. We're going to identify just a few idols that I think we bump into a lot in our lives. And, and as I call them out, maybe you write them down, all right? Or if you don't have anything to write with, if you've got a phone, go to your notes, jot them in there. Because you're probably going to see some tendencies that you have in your life. I think God today would want you to recognize this is the idol that you drift toward. Recognize it, know it, put a name on it so you can put a bullseye on it and ask God to seek and destroy it in your life. So let's go through the list. A person who might say or think, well, you know, my life is not going well if I don't have power and influence over other people. What idol might that be? The idol of power, right? I I, want to have that influence, that power over other people. Now, look, that doesn't mean that's an evil thing to do, right? You, you, You could desire to have a position of power or influence for good reasons, right? For righteous reasons. So that desire in and of itself isn't evil. It's not, let me make this clear. It's not what you desire necessarily that makes, that makes it evil. It's how much you desire it that makes it evil. Does that make sense? When we begin to want it, desire it, or convince ourselves that we need it more than God, now we have a problem. Here's another example. My life's not going well if I'm not loved and respected by this certain person or by this group of people. You can write this down. That's the idol of approval. The idol of approval. We see that a lot on social media, right? Everybody just looking for social, for, for 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 validation, you know, for affirmation. Here's another. My life is not going well if I don't have this creature comfort or this particular quality of life. That's the idol of comfort. I gotta have this thing, this comfort level in my life. Here's another. My life is not going well if I'm not in control over, and you name the situation. You name the person. That's the idol of control. Does that ever strike, by the way? I feel like that's like a lot of us. Anybody say, idol of control. I see that hand. Yes. Anybody else? All right. Nobody. if If your hand's not up, you struggle with the idol of lying, right? I know you do. Here's another. My life's not going well unless people depend on me and need me. That's the idol of helping. Helping's a good thing. You wrap your identity up in that, that's not a good thing. When I thought about that, when I thought about, you know, the show Everybody Loves Raymond, I thought about Ray's mom, right? That person with that idol, nobody can do it like I can do it. I got to do it for you because nobody can do it like I can do it. Here's another. My life is not going well if I don't feel protected and safe. Being protected and safe is important. But that's the idolatry of security. Gotta have that, gotta have that. My life is not going well if I don't have someone in my life meeting my needs. I need my needs met, and my life's not going well if I don't have somebody meeting my needs. That's the idol of dependence. There's one that's opposite of that. My life is not going well unless I'm free of obligation, duty, responsibility. That's the idol of independence. I don't don't want to be, I don't have anybody to have any need of me i don't want to be expected to do anything i just want to be free to do whatever i want to do here's another my life's not going well if i'm not highly productive and getting a lot of work done first one in last one out it's a good thing to work hard that's a good thing like martha right but jesus told martha there's a better thing right work has its place all these things have their place my life is not going well if I'm not being recognized for my accomplishments. That's the idol of achievement. I want the recognition. I want the pat on the back. I want to be celebrated, applauded. My life's not going well if I don't have a certain level of wealth or a certain type of possessions. Kind of like comfort, but we'll call this materialism. It has more to do with status, clout, recognition, admiration. My life's not going well if I don't do everything in the church or in my relationship with God that I should. Whoa, wait a minute. That's right. Religion and even church can become an idol in our life if we're not careful. Oftentimes, that's driven by guilt and by shame. We think we can undo the guilt and undo the shame if we just do more, if we just try harder and be better. Dealt with a lot of people through the years that have about religion and church themselves to death because they just thought this is the way. It's a false God. Here's another. My life's not going well if my race and culture are not recognized as superior or more important. Well, that's not just an idol, that's a gross and heinous sin. But for a lot of people, that's the God that they're worshiping. Here's another. My life is not going well if a specific group of people doesn't let me in their group. That's the idol of the inner ring or the cool kid table, right? So I'll do whatever I got to do to have that in my life. My life's not going well if my children or parents or my spouse isn't happy. Is it a good thing to want your family happy? You better believe it is. Have you ever seen some people run that in the ditch? Because they put that above everything else. My life is not going well if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is not adoring me. I heard a brother in our prayer meeting today. And I want a wife, but I want Jesus first. That's what he said. Relationship idolatry. That's a big one. Here's another. Any of these touching a nerve, by the way? I thought they would touch nerves because they... They touched all over my nerves this week. Anybody else relating to that? Am I the only human being in the room here? Okay, all right, all right, just make sure. My life is not going well unless I have a problem or a pain to experience. That's the idol of victimhood. You ever ever been that person or know somebody like that, that they're just not happy unless they got something to tell you about how bad their life is, right? I need everybody to know how bad my life is. You take that away, they don't know who they are. They got nothing. My life is not going well if my political or social cause is not making progress or holding influence or power. Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, man, now the preacher's meddling. Let me read that one again. My life is not going well if my political or social cause is not making progress or holding influence or power. That's the idol of ideology. Ideology is so important to me, it's my everything. Listen, I, I don't mind telling you, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat, I'm a conservative. But there will be no conservatives in glory. Certainly going to be no liberals in glory. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm joking, y'all. Come on, we got to lighten up, people. We got to lighten up a little bit, Right? But look, I think we're all guilty. Wherever anybody may fall on the political spectrum here, I think in recent days we've all been spending a little too much time worshipping the idol of ideology. I have. I'm guilty. My life's not going well if I don't have a particular kind of look or body image. Or if my personhood is not celebrated by you or identified, recognized, affirmed by you. That's the idolatry of Image, and we could just keep on going, couldn't we? With that list, we could just go on down. We could get very, very specific. You know, we could we could get into some of the more minute details of that. There's been times in my life that sports might have been uh, the idol in my life, or a person might have been the idol. Whatever, we could get really, really specific in that. But here's what I want to do for the remainder of the time that we have together. I, I believe, and I think maybe it's Tim Keller that maybe first spoke to this, but I I agree that all of these really are kind of rooted in one of four main idols. Or what you may call four root idols. Now listen to me, really, really important. I believe it is so important right now that as we begin to unpack these four root idols. Because we could spend all day chasing scores of idols. But let's get to the root. And I think there's four root idols that drive the others. Four root idols that drive our behavior, that drive our thought process, that drive our attitude, that sort of just control our life. These four root idols, if we're not careful, they'll take us into captivity, they'll crawl into the cockpit of our life, which is our heart. The Bible says above all else, guard your heart, because it's the wellspring of life, and they'll take over our lives. So here's what I need you to do. Promise me you'll do this. Promise? All right? As we go through these four root idols, would you allow the Holy Spirit to say, Hey, listen, that's the one that tries to take your heart into captivity. That's the one that you struggle with the most. And you might identify more than one. But look, we got to know who our captors are, amen? We need to identify them. We need to name them. We need to be calling them out before the throne of grace. And say, Holy Spirit, get a bead on that one. And help me by your power, by your grace, for your glory, obliterate it so that I don't spend my days with my heart in captivity. I want my heart to be home in you, God. I want to dwell in the shelter and in the shadow of the Almighty. So here's the four root idols. You ready? Number one, power. A longing for influence, respect, or recognition. Y'all to have some fun today? I wasn't going to do this, but let's do this. Let's just, let's just be a class in here today. Would anybody be willing to say, I don't know what the other three are so far, but Holy Spirit might be on something on that one. Anybody? Just brave enough to say, I saw that hand. All right. I see you nodding. All right. Chickens. Number two. Control. <laughs> I hadn't even described it yet. <laughs> Control, a longing <laughs> a longing to have everything go according to my plan. Anybody? Oh, bunch of y'all. Bunch. Will about stood up in his seat. I saw you, brother. I saw you. I'd written your name beside that one. I've been praying over you this week. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I, I couldn't think about anybody but me as I went through this this week. So that's power, that's control. Third, comfort, a longing for pleasure. Safety or security. Anybody? I see you. I see you. How many of you say, I'm three for three? <laughs> I'm wondering if I'm saved right now, right? All right. Hang in there. Number four, approval. A longing to be accepted, admired, or desired. It tends to be most of the younger folks, right, Melinda? Most of the younger folks. I've noticed as you get older, you quit caring so much about that one. You kind of move into some of the others maybe more, but as we're younger, that seems to be maybe more of a concern. Now, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see how these are practically sort of problematic in the life of a believer, okay? So let's take an example like, At your workplace, there's an opportunity for a promotion. And we have four different people that want to get that promotion. But these four people struggle with four different root idols. And as believers who are interested in this job promotion, this self-awareness about the root idol in their life has a place to play in their pursuit of this job promotion. Is it wrong to pursue a job promotion? Absolutely not. Could it be wrong to pursue a job promotion? Yes, it could. Because of what's driving in the cockpit, right? What's pushing the motivation? what's, What's driving me toward that? So so here's how it might look, for example. So a person who struggles with that power idol, that that believer who's going to pursue that job promotion, who knows I struggle with this desire for power, needs to pay close attention to their heart. Because they may want that promotion because of the status, the authority, the power over other people that that promotion might... Give to them. Now, is that necessarily a bad thing? Listen, I mean, if I know my spiritual giftings, if I, if I have enough self-awareness to know how God has wired me up, if I, if I understand that I really believe I could add value to this organization if I have this position, if I have authority over these people, and I believe that God could leverage that to extend His kingdom into this place, that's a good thing, isn't it? Right? Right? But what if that's not my motivation? What if my motivation is, I'm just power hungry. I'm just respect hungry. I just want to have authority. I don't want to answer to anybody. I want people to answer to me. All right? So there could be holy motivations, but there could be idolatrous motivations for that person with that power idol who wants that promotion. But there's another believer in that workplace, they want the same promotion, but they struggle with the control idol. And so what if that person is applying for that job promotion so they can make more money, so they can save more money, so that they can better control the future for themselves and for their family? Can I ask you this? Is there anything evil or sinful about wanting to make more money, to save more money, to have a more secure future for your family? That is not wrong. That is not evil. But you know when that can become wrong or evil? I don't need God for my security. I'll do it myself. I can make it. I can make the money. I can save the money. I can provide for my family apart from God. So now we got a problem there. So a person could be, a believer could be pursuing that job promotion with the right motivation that says, I I want my family to have security because when Pastor Will announces a mission trip, I want us to be able to help other people go. Or I want me and my family to be able to go. Or we want to get involved in foster care, adoption. We want to be part of a church planning team. We want to have some security so that we're able to invest into the kingdom. So that we're not wrapped up in these Fears and obligations and debt. We want to bring glory to God with everything that He's given us, right? So it could be holy or it could be idolatrous, right? Now there's a third believer in that workplace. He's after the same job promotion, but he tends or she tends to struggle with the idol of comfort. Now that person's going to need to watch their heart too because it could be that they're after that job promotion because it's going to bring more comfort to their life, more ease to their life, more pleasure. To their life. Can I ask you, is that necessarily evil? Not necessarily, right? It, it could be that my family's been in this hard place. It's been a distraction. We've not been able to serve the Lord quite like we've wanted to because it, maybe it's been a long commute or maybe whatever the thing may be. But I see this as an opportunity that it makes life a little easier, There's a little more comfort in here, a little more pleasure in here. So this is going to be an advantage to my children or to my wife, to my spouse, to my church family, to the people around me. God can leverage this for much good. This could become a place of rest in my life where I am rejuvenated and replenished to go out and to serve the Lord. I don't want to just burn out. I don't want to exhaust myself. And maybe the current job that I'm in is just draining The life out of me. But this is an opportunity that better fits my giftings and my talents. And and so it's an opportunity to be a healthier follower of the Lord Jesus. So it could be right, holy motivations. But it could be more selfish in nature. Now there's a fourth believer in that workplace. Some of you are thinking, man, I wish I had four believers where I worked." There's a fourth person in that workplace who's after the same promotion. And their heart tends to struggle with the idol of approval. A person with the approval idol needs to watch their heart because they might want that job promotion because of the approval that that's going to get them from somebody. Maybe they've been trying to get their daddy's approval their whole life. If I get this position, I'll finally have it. Or to have the president of the company's approval. Or this circle of friends, that'll meet a need in my life. I'll feel like a whole person. Like, I have finally arrived. Got to check that. Got to be careful. Is it, is it sinful to get the approval of other people? No, not necessarily. I mean, if I want, Marcus doesn't know Jesus, and man, I, he's just got a wall up between me and him, and I want to share Jesus with him. I, God, give me some approval in Marcus's life, because I want to have an opportunity to share the gospel with him. There could be holy motivations behind it, but there could be idolatrous motivations behind it. Now, some of you are sitting there going, man, this Christian life thing is really complicated. It is really complex. Yes, it is. That is why God gave us the Holy Spirit. You can't figure this stuff out on your own. It is difficult to understand our own hearts. By the way, that's why it's not our place to judge the intentions or motivations of somebody else's heart. Right? As brothers and sisters in the Lord, we can call out the stuff we see above the surface. We don't know the intentions or judgments, the motivations of other people's hearts. We can't even figure out our own most of the time, right? So we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the help of God's Word. Listen, this is complicated stuff. I was a youth pastor in the 90s. We're way past youth group stuff from the 1990s. This is not a list of rules and a bunch of check boxes. Don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, and don't date girls who do, and you'll be a very good Christ follower. No, no, no. It's way more complex than that, isn't it? To honor Christ gets into the depths of our heart, into the depths of our soul, and what is in the cockpit and what is driving me. This is grown up, big time, following Christ, being a disciple in a fallen, broken world, in a fallen, broken body, in the middle of constant, unending spiritual warfare. This is realizing I can check all the boxes and still have it all wrong in the heart. I can have it all right on the exterior, but be all wrong down in the heart. I gotta look deep down into my heart and trust the Holy Spirit to help me understand what is going on in the depths of me. So can I ask you, have you have you identified some idols in your life this morning? Maybe even specifically the Holy Spirit surfaced something, but maybe one of those four root idols or more than one. So what do you do with that? How do we Break free. How do we escape captivity? How do we escape the Babylon that our hearts have been living in and embrace our true home in God? How do I repent of the idol beneath the service? And how do I keep myself from these idols and keep my heart at home in God where it's supposed to be? Thomas Chalmers said this. He said, this is a preacher from about 300 years ago. This is why I love reading old preachers. Because I read them and I realize they're the same as me. They struggle up and down just like me. Need the same Holy Spirit. Idolatry is not new to 2021. It's been around a long time. The enemy knows how to use it, right? But Thomas Chalmers said this, the best way, that caught my attention, the best way to overcome the world is not with not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world. Or seeing something more attractive than the idol, I would say. Christ. We've got to get our eyes, in other words, on Jesus. I repent of and I get victory over these idols in my life. Not as I look in the mirror and say, hey, you can do this. Work harder, be better, come on, throw another stick in the fire at camp and sing kumbaya one more time. You can do it. No, it's not looking in the mirror itself, but it's looking to God himself, beholding him and all of his glory and beauty. Repenting of my lesser gods means that I have to remember the one true God, the one who is Above all other. The one who alone is holy, unique in a class by himself, has no peer or rival. Now I'll show you specifically if, for all the power people in the room. Hold your hand up, power idol people. Hold them up, hold them up, hold them up. Just give me a little flex right there. I'm power idol person, that's me, all right? Here we go. How do we repent of that power? By submitting to his greater power within me. There's a greater power. Submit to his power in you. First John 4, 4, but you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the Spirit who lives in you is greater than the Spirit who lives in the world. So, God, it is not power that I need because your power is in me, and I submit and I surrender to your power in my life. So that's why you need to be able to name the captive, the captor of power, that idol. Call it out and say, Lord, your power is greater, and I submit to you. I surrender to you. How many control idle people in the room? That's a bunch of y'all, right? All right. Control, how do you repent of that? By surrendering to his ultimate control. You just got to ask yourself, who makes a better God? (laughs) You or him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, so don't worry. That's a message right there. So don't worry about these things saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? How are we going to work this out? How's this going to happen? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. That's how people that don't know God think. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Here's your job. You seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he'll give you everything that you need. So if you're a control, idol person, God, I submit and surrender to your control. I just want to seek your kingdom, your righteousness. You're in control, God. It's your control that will guide me and lead me. I rest in your control. Heart rate goes down. Number three, how many comfort idol people in the room? All right. How do we repent of that comfort idol? By remembering the greater comfort that we have in God. There is no creature comfort in this world that compares to the comfort that we have in God himself. Paul writes 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, all praise to God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given you. Have you realized yet that some of the hard things you've gone through that God's comforted you in, he did that so you could turn around and comfort somebody else going through the same kind of hard stuff? Approval? Approval junkies in the room? I see that hand. Day, Boy, just fast on that. And that's that's been one that's just haunted me my whole life, that whole approval thing. How do we repent of that? By rejoicing in God's gracious approval of us because of Jesus. I mean, Justin, he's a great dude, man. And I'd love to have his approval, but you know what? If I don't get it, it's okay. Because God has approved of me. Not because of who I am or anything that I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. He's called me his. Why would I be hungry for any more approval than that? Colossians 1.20. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you. You're approved. You were once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. You're approved and you are holy and blameless. As you stand before him without a single fault, you go, but I'm not holy and blameless. If you've trusted Christ before God, you are in his sight. You are. You've been wrapped up in the righteousness of Jesus. Verse 23, but you must continue to believe this truth. And stand firmly in it. That's your job. Just believe who He says you are. You don't need anybody else's approval. You're approved by God. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Listen, are you seeking power today for the sake of power? His power is greater. Are you seeking control today for the sake of control? His control is perfect. Are you seeking comfort today in things of this world? That's just kindling for his second coming when his comfort is completely satisfying. You're chasing down the approval of man when the only approval that matters, the only applause that matters, is the applause of two nail scarred hands. And you've already gotten that when you said yes to his son Jesus. Not because you said yes, but because Jesus. Saved you by his blood and wrapped you in his righteousness. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. Nothing you can do to make him love you less. He said it is finished and it's done. There's no God like our God. All these other idols we keep turning to, puny, pathetic. There's no God like our God. He alone is God. And if you'll trust and treasure him supremely, your heart will be at home in him. You'll be encircled and engulfed by him. If you'll just simply trust him above all, treasure him above all. And let me remind you one last thing. Whatever it may cost you to trust and treasure him supremely is nothing compared to what it cost him to treasure you. Where's your heart today? Has it been drawn into captivity? Power, control, comfort, approval, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Are you in captivity today? I'm reminding you, the padlock is broken. When the stone rolled away, he broke the padlock. You're free. You might have been buying the lie that you're not, but God says in Christ you are. All you got to do is turn your feet toward home and start walking. Better yet, start running. And you won't have to run all the way home. He'll run to meet you. I've been just jamming to a song this week, loud, played it for my family last night. And it's kind of about the prodigal. And it's just repeating, I'm running, I'm running, I'm not going to turn back, not going to turn back, I'm running, I'm running. And then the, the worship leader, he gets to this place and he said, you know, he wasn't the only one running in the story. The father was also running. And then they started singing the same line, but this time it was the father singing, I'm running, I'm running, and I'm never turning back. I'm running, and I'm running, and I'm never turning back. I don't care how long you might have been in captivity or how you got there. Your heavenly father's running after you today. And he's inviting you. To come home, and he ain't gonna take you home as a slave, but as his son, as his daughter. Let's pray, God. We we claim what the psalmist says that the the one who lives in the shelter of the Most High will dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. And Lord God, we want to dwell. Wherever we may be today, whatever our circumstances may be today, we want to and we need to dwell in you. And because of Jesus, you will not reject us. You will not remove us. You will not abandon us. You will not leave us. You will not forsake us. And no matter what storm comes against us, we have a refuge. We have a dwelling, a home in the shelter of the Most High God. You are that strong tower that the people of God run into and find safety. We take up residence today, God, in you. Many of your people today are tired weary, and afraid. Holy Spirit, give us grace to make our home in you today. You are our safe and our protective Father. We want to make ourselves at home in your shadow now. We take our position Beneath your protection. Our idols have never done that for us. They can't and they won't, but you, God, you're more than enough. Grip our mind's attention and our heart's affection now and bring us home. Jesus' name, let's stand. Let's worship the Lord. He's the one true God. There is none other. He is holy, none like him.